Good morning. Good to see you. Glad to be here. Excited to look at this text with you, thinking about Advent, thinking about the coming of Jesus. A lot of you already know me to some degree or another, and so many of you will already know that I spent a lot of my adult years uh, as a professional musician playing French horn in orchestras and things like this. This was my job before I got into ministry. Uh, and so most of my anecdotes and stories that I will tell come from the, either that season of my life or the season of life before that where I did restaurant management. So and then some of you are like, oh, he's going to tell a little Caesar's story. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. Deal with it. Okay. Uh, but I do want to share with you a story uh, that take, took place while I was working on my master's degree in French horn performance. <laughs> Fancy. Uh, so I'm at the University of North Texas studying music. Uh, many of you don't know what that's like to study music at the university level, and so I'll share with you just briefly what that looks like. You study your instrument with a professor who is a master of that instrument, and so are lots of other people. And so at least once a week, all of those people that are studying that one instrument will get together for kind of group instruction and for playing together as a group and hearing one another and learning from one another, kind of a cohort, if you will. And very often, what will happen is once or twice a year, your professor will hire from outside another professional on your instrument to come in and do a master class. They'll come in and do some intense teaching for like two days. And so you'll meet for three, four, five hours on a couple of days, and they'll share all of their wisdom and insights and things like this. And very often, what will happen is that the professor will choose four or five of the people from the studio that's what it's called, that group of people studying the same instrument, a studio. And so he would choose four or five of those people to play something for this professional that they've brought in so that he can then have something to critique and then use as a teaching tool. Now, on this particular occasion, he brought in a guy named David Griffin, who is literally one of the best French horn players on the planet. He plays in the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. He's incredible. But at this point in my life, I also thought I was incredible. Now, I was good, but at the time, I genuinely thought of people like him and people like me as basically at the same place. He just has more experience and opportunity. I'm awesome. And so, you know, we're colleagues, basically, you know. And so my professor chooses me to play stuff for him that he's going to critique. I show up, I play the little thing, and he's like, oh, good job. Now, uh, your rhythm wasn't really... Exact. So here's what I want you to do. Really think about the rhythm. Really line it up. And he gives me a few critiques. I'm like, oh, okay, cool, 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 cool. Uh, so I play it again. And he's like, great. Uh, still, rhythm, not, not really, you know, great. I think it's probably the word I'm trying to say. Not great. And so you want to do better, be better. And I was like, oh, all right. So I end up doing this like seven or eight times. Play the same thing in front of 60 other people who are also studying the instrument alongside me. With each successive playing of my little thing, I grow less and less interested in him. My esteem for him diminishes. My respect for him. We're not colleagues. This guy's a jerk. As <laughs> you know, I'm playing it perfectly. I'm so good. So then after like the seventh or eighth time, it goes, great, great, great. So still there's, okay, so let me just, so he plays it. So he plays what I've already played eight times in front of everyone. And when he plays it, you guys, it was incredible. It was so perfect. It was perfection 
in every possible way. I heard him do everything that I did not do. I heard him do everything that I was supposed to do, and he was trying to critique me on. I was like, oh, whatever, I'm awesome. And so I, I suddenly, all of a sudden, I realized what I was dealing with. I realized the extreme radical difference between me and him. It was huge. What I was expecting from him was somebody who's as good as me, but with more experience and more opportunity. But what I got was something wildly different. Way better. Way, way, way better. So maybe I was actually in the top 5% of French horn players on the planet at that time. That guy? was in the top 0.005%. The difference between us was dramatic. And I was shamed in my heart. Everyone else was like, Carl, you did great. It was great. You're so good. You're so excellent. I was like, I'm not excellent. That guy's excellent. Now, why do I share this story with you? Two reasons. Reason number one, self-deprecating stories make you like me. <laughs> That's what I'm looking for, for you to like me. Some of you are like, well, I was liking you until you said that. Now I don't. Yeah, you do. The other reason is because my experience, thinking I knew what I was going to get, and then finding out it's something way, way different, is kind of like what the Israelites experienced as they were anticipating and waiting on the Messiah. What they get is something slightly different, maybe dramatically different than what they thought they were going to get. So I think there's a connection between what, what Isaiah is going to be prophesying about in our passage today, which then translates into the expectations of God's people but the actual arrival of the Messiah is actually something different. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the text. Father, we love you. We're thankful that you love us, and we ask for you to be near to us. As we look at your word, as we consider the words of your prophet Isaiah, we pray that our hearts will be opened, that we will understand you better as a result of studying this passage, and that greater understanding of you would lead to a greater love of you. And that that love would lead to more faithful worship, that we would esteem you as we should, that we would honor you, that we would worship you, that we would submit our lives to you as we should because we understand and love you more rightly. So Lord, I pray that you'll give me wisdom, help me to speak correctly and clearly about what your word says, uh, and that we would all be encouraged today as we look at this passage. We love you. We thank you that you love us, and we pray all of this in the beautiful name of Christ. Amen. Okay, so a little bit of background for this passage, okay? The timing. When was this written? This passage was written during the period of time when the nation of Israel had already split. So you have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, and so you, this is already taking place, but they are still under the authority of their own kings. Assyria has not yet come in and wiped them out and taken them into captivity and so on. So this, this writing is taking place about 700 years before Jesus is born. So about 70 decades before the birth of Christ, Isaiah is writing these words. And that's what this passage is all about. This passage is all about the Messiah. So it's all about Jesus. We know that now, but at the time, they just knew it was about the Messiah. So while we walk through this, we're going to do something together that I've not done before, a little more academic, we're going to prepare three lists to answer three questions, okay? So here's the three questions we're going to try to answer out of this passage. Question number one, where will the Messiah come from? Question number two, what will the Messiah be like? And question number three, what will the Messiah do? 
Okay, And so as we go through the text, we're going to add to these little lists that try to answer each of these questions. So those of you that take notes, I'm sure you love that. Those of you that don't, you're like, come on, man, just get to the point. Okay, so let's start in the most logical place to start. Verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So we immediately start off talking about the stump, which requires us to jump backwards just a little bit in Isaiah and think about what's come before. So back in chapter 6 of Isaiah, God is cutting Israel down. God is removing them from their own rule, their own authority. He's cutting them down. He's removing them from their place of honor. They, don't ha- they won't have land anymore and so on. And uh, Isaiah is prophesying about this in chapter 6. So Isaiah has just received his commission from God. God says, who shall I send? Isaiah says, send me. Here I am. Right? And then God begins to immediately tell Isaiah how he's going to lay waste to the nation of Israel. He's going to have them defeated and have them taken into captivity. It hasn't happened yet, but Isaiah is talking about it because God's telling him. Then a few chapters later in Isaiah 10, God starts to talk about Assyria, which is the nation that he uses to get rid of Israel, to get Israel taken into captivity. And God speaks of Assyria as an axe in his own hand. I am wielding the axe. I am cutting down Israel, and I'm using Assyria to do it. But once their usefulness has been fulfilled, once I'm done with Assyria and I've used them to punish Israel because they have broken the covenant, because they have been idolatrous, because they have strayed from me, then I'm going to turn my wrath on Assyria, who is also wicked. And so God speaks of this in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. It says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. So that's the very end of chapter 10 which literally come. Those are the last couple of verses of chapter 10, right before chapter 11 that we're looking at this morning. And so if we take verse 1 from chapter 11 and we stick it on the end of chapter 10 and we don't do a chapter break, we just read. Then we get 34 says, he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an ax and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So he's talking about using Assyria to cut down Israel and then he will cut down Assyria, and then here comes this shoot 700 years later. So there's a 700-year gap between the end of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11, and that's not said anywhere. The idea just keeps going. That's a difficult thing. There's no indication that hundreds of years are passing, which is one of the amazing but difficult things about the prophets. John Piper, the famous preacher and pastor, I think has some helpful words to say about this, this idea of this weird, inexplicable time constraint that the prophets don't seem to live within. And the way he describes it says something he learned in seminary was that when the prophets look at what God is revealing to them, it's like they're looking at a mountain range. And if you're looking at a mountain range, there's some mountains that are closer to you and you see them in greater detail and they're brown and they have snow on the top. And there's other mountains that are really far away that are kind of more hazy, have a more bluish tint, And your eyes have learned to tell the difference between those. You can tell which mountains are closer and which ones are further. But a prophet looks at that, and it's just all mountain. He sees it all the same, and he describes it as he sees it. So I think it's helpful uh, just 
just to see that there is this huge gap of time in Isaiah's reckoning of what's taking place that he doesn't tell us about. So verse one starts with, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, not everybody in here has had experience with stumps. I have, they're the worst, right? Trees are good, stumps are the worst. But if you cut a tree down and just leave the stump, there's a moderate chance that that stump is indeed gonna grow another tree. And it'll be a weird tree because it'll be a little stick on top of a big stump. And you're like, what's happening? And so if you don't grind that stump and get rid of the roots altogether, there's a pretty good chance you're going to get another weird tree after you cut down the big one to begin with. So there is this kind of resurrection idea that's painted into this image of this stump. But why is it called the stump of Jesse? That seems strange. All references to kings that come afterward are always referred back to David. There's always a reference to David. David is the source of the royal line. David is the great king that's always referred to. The son of David, those who came from David. But now we're talking about a stump of Jesse. Why? Why is this cut down tree? Why does it have this shoot and it's being referred to as the the stump of Jesse? Well, this new shoot has come from Jesse, not David, meaning it is somehow on par with, equal to, perhaps even greater than, David himself. Think about this. If we're talking about the genealogy that precedes the Messiah, that of course includes Jesse. And he has lots of sons, right? Samuel comes to his house, observes all of his sons, and the one he chooses that God says, that's the one I want for king, anoint him, is David. So any shoot that comes out of Jesse that leads to the Messiah can only be David. So somehow this is David, but it's a better David. It's some other David. It's some David that's more and something better. And Jesus addresses this more directly in Mark chapter 12 when he visits his hometown of Nazareth. Starting in verse 35, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So Jesus is using Psalm 110, which was written by David, to explain this weird quandary about the Messiah coming from the line of David, and yet somehow David calls him Lord. In Jewish culture, you would not look at your grandson or your great-grandson and say, oh, my Lord, please let me serve you. You would say that about your grandfather. You would go backwards on the family tree to show honor, but you wouldn't look down. Those guys should look up at you. And what's happening here is Jesus is helping us to see what's going on. Because when David says, the Lord said to my Lord, the first Lord is Yahweh, God. So God says to my Lord, David's Lord, which is the Messiah, so The father says to the son, sit at my right hand. And so how is it that David can both be looking at this Messiah and saying, my Lord, while also having him be further down the lineage? It's weird. But I think we'll get more clarity on that as we continue. So there's another reason that Jesse is the reference point, and that is to demonstrate the humble birth of the Messiah. Because Jesse was not a royal house until David comes along. Jesse was just a dude. Jesse was just a guy with a family and a flock and herds and things like this. To speak of the stump being that of Jesse rather than that of David is kind of a nod to this humbleness, this meekness, this lowness of Jesus entering the world. And we see Isaiah speak more clearly about this later in chapter 53 
Verse 2, where he says, For he, meaning the Messiah, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So this lowly estate of Jesus the Messiah, when he comes into the world, he will be low. He will be part of the house of Jesse, not of the royal line of David, and yet still of the royal line of David, and yet somehow still greater than David. So let's move on to the next part of verse 1. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So this shoot that comes out of the stump will grow, become a tree, have branches, produce fruit. Right? How do we know a healthy tree? By its fruit. We just learned about that in Matthew 7 just a couple of months ago. Right? Matthew 7, talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says you will know by their fruit. Good fruit, a good, a good tree produces good fruit, a bad tree produces bad fruit, and so on. What is the fruit that's being talked about? It's the adult life and ministry of Jesus. When the Messiah comes, he will bear fruit in his life and in his ministry. So let's look at our first question. According to our passage today, where will the Messiah come from? Two things. Number one, he will come, af- he will come from the line of David, but he'll be greater than David somehow. And then two, he will come after the nation of Israel is cut down by Assyria. And it appears that this Davidic line, this tree, is this dead stump. That the people will be in exile. There won't be any Jewish kings at all, much less one from the line of David. So that's where he will come from. Now, what will he be like and what will he do? Let's look at verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So the Spirit of the Lord, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit shall rest upon him, shall come upon this Messiah. So we're talking about an anointing. We're talking about anointing, which is essentially the setting apart of an individual for a particular work of God. It often was accompanied with oil on the head, a ceremonial gesture to say God has appointed, God has set you apart for particular work. So this was primarily reserved for prophets and for priests, and for kings. Like Moses being told by God to anoint Aaron and his sons for the work of the priesthood, to take care of the temple. Or Samuel being told by God to go to Jesse's house and anoint David as the new king. Or Elijah being told by God to go and anoint Elisha to take his place. And so Jesus' anointing, when he comes, takes place at his baptism. The Spirit comes upon him, and that's typically what happens when someone gets anointed, that they are immediately set upon by the Spirit. The Spirit comes to rest upon them. And Jesus makes this idea abundantly clear in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16, where he says, He came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as it was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me and to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, that freaked people out for him to say that. But what he's saying is, I am indeed this Messiah that Isaiah has talked about. I have been anointed by God 
to do this work. So Jesus is making clear that he's been anointed, and that's what Isaiah is talking about here in verse 2. But he does it in an interesting and very specific way that we could miss if we just casually glance at this. He pairs up these two, these, these three pairs of words to describe how the Spirit comes upon him. He's given a spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, and then of knowledge and of a fear of the Lord. Each of these pairs of words coincides with one of these offices that gets anointed, a prophet, a priest, and a king. He's given a spirit of wisdom and understanding like a prophet who's given wisdom by God and an understanding of what God is up to so that he might speak to the people. He's given a spirit of counsel and might that he might give and receive counsel as a king, that he might have the strength and might to be in charge because he is a king. And he's given the spirit of knowledge and a fear of the Lord, a knowledge of God's word and a fear of the Lord, and a, which gives him a desire to work out God's law with faithfulness like a priest. So Jesus, this Messiah, is being anointed as a prophet and a priest and a king. That's what Isaiah is telling us. So we get the first one on our list of what will the Messiah be like. First one on our list is that he will be anointed by the Holy Spirit as a prophet, priest, and a king. So whatever the best version of a king is, Jesus will be a better one. If that's David, he's a better David. Whatever the best version of a prophet is, if that's Elijah, he's a better Elijah. Whatever the best version of a priest is, if that's Aaron, he's a better priest. Jesus is the best version of prophet, priest, and king that will ever come. And he holds all three of those offices perfectly. Okay, verse 3. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. So let's look at that first phrase. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Right? His delight is going to be following the law of God. He wants nothing more than to honor and to obey his heavenly Father. And Jesus makes that so clear in John chapter 4, starting in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. They're all hungry. Eat, Rabbi. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And this is like one of my favorite verses in the Bible. So the disciples said to one another, what? You holding out on us? Somebody brought you food? Who brought him food? What's going on? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What I live for, the thing that feeds me, the reason I'm here, what I'm all about is to do the work of my father who sent me, to be faithful, to uphold his law. And then uh, the second half of this verse, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. He will have the judgment of God, not the judgment of men. He will not be swayed by the filthy rags of a poor person and have pity on them just because of the way they look. He won't be swayed by the fine garments of a rich man because he's got a lot of power and sway. He's not going to be swayed by the poor grammar of the educator or the smooth words of a salesman. Right? What does he say to that rich young ruler? Sell all that you have and follow me. What kind of disciples does he choose? Men who couldn't hack it in rabbi school. right? Fishermen. And this is nothing like what the ancient Israelites were used to. They weren't used to a king who would come and have good judgment and make decisions based on God's law, not based on what they might be able to get from somebody. That's not what they were used to. They were used to kings that were corrupt and wicked. That's what Israel and Judah had had for decades. And if we're honest, nothing like that is what we have today. Corruption and wickedness abound today in our culture. 
I don't care how MAGA you are, verse 3 does not describe any of our political leaders. Isaiah is talking about something wildly different than what we could even conceive of. Isaiah is telling us that this Messiah's ability to discern the truth will be so much greater than what simply his eyes and ears tell him. His ability to discern the truth and to judge rightly will be so much greater than what any of us are used to or what any of us can conceive of. So back to our list on what will the Messiah be like we saw in verse 2, he will be anointed by the Holy Spirit as a prophet, priest, and a king. Now in verse 3, we see he will be more discerning than we can imagine. Now let's hear a little bit about what will the Messiah do in verse 4. Verse 4, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Now we're getting to the good stuff, right? This is where we start hearing about the Messiah who's coming to destroy his enemies and being the conquering king that judges the world, which is the very reason that the Messiah or the people of Israel misunderstood the Messiah. When Jesus comes, they misunderstand what he's about, what he's here for, because of passages like this. They didn't have wrong ideas about what the Messiah was because they were foolish. They didn't understand the timing. They didn't understand that Isaiah is looking at the mountain range and telling them about everything he sees. Because the timing isn't clear and it's genuinely confusing. It can be confusing to us. The Messiah is going to come and judge the earth. He is going to slay his enemies, but not yet. And what is this about striking the earth with the rod of his mouth, right? This seems very aggressive. Why do you have a rod in your mouth, Jesus, right? We get a similar kind of imagery in Revelation 19 when Jesus is described as having a sword coming out of his mouth. This is the word of God. And the rod is the judgment of the judge, of the good king, the good judge. God's judgments are righteous and they are perfect, and that's how the Messiah will judge. That's contrary to what the people will have been accustomed to. They're not used to having good judgment in their leaders. So Isaiah is really answering the questions that good citizens would ask. How righteous is this judge? Will the poor be neglected? And will the wicked get away with it? Because that's what we're used to. That's how it usually goes. That's what the Israelites were used to with these terrible kings that they'd been under. That's certainly what we're used to. Isaiah is clear. He is going to bring, this Messiah is going to bring care for the least and stern justice for the worst. He's going to take care of the victims. He's going to take care of the wicked. Also, he's not just a judge. He's a king. And a king needs no other tool to get stuff done than to proclaim it. His words make things happen. Which is why Isaiah says, with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Because when the king says it, it happens. So, what will the Messiah do? Right? We're starting a new list. What will the Messiah do? According to verse 4 in our passage this morning, he will righteously judge the world. He will bring justice to the weak and to the poor and destruction to the wicked. Okay, verse 5. Verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Clothing in the scripture is often used as a metaphor for the character of a person the things that they commit themselves to. So the belt of his waist, right? The belt 
would be one of the last articles of clothing that you would put on. So once your belt is on, you're ready. You're ready to go out in the world. You're ready to get things done. You're ready for action because you put your belt on. You're done getting dressed. The Messiah's belt is righteousness, signifying that's what he's about. That's the action he's ready to go out and take. The thing that he's going to go out and get done in the world, righteousness. And then the belt of his loins. This one's a bit weirder, but it is a similar idea. Isaiah is making a reference to undergarments, right? What article of clothing is closest to you, right? When you strip away everything else, what are you left with that you don't take off? Your undergarments, right? Your loincloth, they're the things you don't part with. They're the foundation of the rest of your outfit. Everything else is built upon it. And the Messiah's foundational garment here, his foundational piece of clothing in this metaphor is faithfulness. So verse five is now taking us back to our list on what will the Messiah be like? So we've seen that he will be anointed by the Holy Spirit as a prophet, priest, and a king. We've seen that he will be more discerning than we can imagine. And now we see he will be righteous and faithful in all that he does. Okay, let's get back to more of what he will do. Verse six, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. All right, so Isaiah is telling us that this anointed, righteous, discerning, faithful savior is gonna bring about peace. But the kind of peace that the Messiah is gonna bring is something unimaginable, something we can't conceive of, something completely different than what you and I think about when we think of peace. Because what do we typically think of? We think of a couple of nations who are at war and they just stop fighting with one another. We think about, you know, this argument that I've had with my sister for years and, oh, we finally reconcile, right? We think of person-to-person or maybe nation-to-nation kind of resolutions or peace. Isaiah is trying to help us imagine and envision something bigger and greater and more crazy than that. He's painting this picture of not just conflict between people. He's talking about peace among all the world, even the natural world, being at peace. So the first thing he talks about is a wolf and a lamb. And where are they gonna, what are they gonna, they're gonna dwell together. They're roomies. A wolf and a lamb sharing an apartment. That's weird, right? Wolves find lambs to be tasty snacks. That seems like a weird situation. But he's saying the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Right? Then he says, the leopard is going to lie down with a young goat. So they're going to hang out and take naps together. It's weird. Right? And apparently, leopards are very picky about what they want to eat. They want young goats. Oh, I'm famished. Oh, leopard. Would you like me to bring you some goat? Hmm. Only if it's a young goat. I don't know if that has any bearing on what we're doing. But the leopard and the young goat are going to hang out together. And then we have a calf and a lion, and another calf that's fat, fat and calf, okay? Two calves and a lion seems like a bad pairing, right? These guys are hanging out together. The lion isn't known for hunting calves, but if they were available, I'm sure you'd go for it. They're meat eaters. They enjoy eating whatever they can catch, right? And then he says, a little child shall lead them. So a little child is gonna lead around a wolf, and a lamb, and a leopard, and a young goat, and a calf, and another fat calf, and a lion. You're gonna lead them all around. Any of those animals can hurt a little toddler. Even the fattened calf could knock over a two-year-old. Hurt them real bad, right? 
And so are you going to let your two-year-old lead all these animals around? Of course not. This is ridiculous. The whole thing is ridiculous. But that's the point. The point is that the kind of peace that the Messiah is going to bring is beyond your comprehension. It's outside of what you understand as being peaceful. It's literally outside of your reckoning. And he keeps going. Verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze. Okay, now we're changing the way animals eat altogether. The cow is grazing. Okay, I'm down for that. A bear grazing. I think I've seen like on the Discovery Channel that bears might eat grass if they can't find enough salmon you know, or whatever. I'm going to nibble a little grass just to keep themselves alive and get nutrients or something. But they don't graze. That's not how they eat. That's weird. Their young shall lie down together. Okay, so the cow's kids and the bear's kids are going to lie down together, take naps. It's nap time. They're going to lie down together. And the lion, lion has come back again. He's done hanging out with the two calves. Now he's back and he's going to eat straw like an ox. That's crazy. And we got that lion again. Now there's always significance of things being repeated in the scriptures, right? We, so this lion's getting mentioned again. Lions are strong. They're powerful. To defeat one would be a sign of masculinity and prowess, even of kingly power. I think of David in 1 Samuel 17 when he's about to fight Goliath. And King Saul's like, man, I don't know, David. He's huge. You are, how do you say, not huge. I don't think you should fight him. He's like, well, hold up, bro. I've been taking care of my, my father's stuff. I've killed lions. I've killed bears. I got this. So being able to kill and overcome a lion is a demonstration of kingly power. But the king we're talking about, the Messiah, he doesn't defeat lions. He remakes them. He changes them utterly. The peace that this Messiah is going to bring is not what we're used to. It's more than we can imagine. It's the kind of peace where a lion and its prey will no longer be at odds because somehow now the lion is content to eat straw. And the nerdier of us are going to ask, I don't know, I don't know, a predator able to survive on a vegetarian diet? That's not how they work. It's not how they're designed. They have to eat meat. But we're missing the point of the prophecy, that the Messiah is going to bring the kind of peace that literally changes the world, that literally undoes the way things are. The way you conceive of what this world is will be utterly changed. And these seemingly impossible pairings, a wolf and a lamb, can be extended into our context as well. The rich and the poor hanging out together. The governed and the government will be at, at peace. It'll be like you hanging out with Nancy Pelosi and enjoying it. Can you conceive of that? No, you cannot. But the Messiah, it brings that kind of peace. And there's still more of this in verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. So he's talking about a kid, a, we a nursing child, a child that cannot sit up or walk, a child that's still nursing, and a weaned child, a child who can stand up and walk around a bit, but still a toddler, playing with snakes, playing with cobras and adders, and lots of them, and it's going to be fine. Children and snakes. Now, there certainly is an allusion and a connection to Genesis 3. We have the child of the woman and the child of the serpent. There's certainly a connection there. But Isaiah is trying to help us wrap our minds around this radical, earth-shattering change and peace that this Messiah will bring. Because who's the most vulnerable to the violence and the danger of the natural world? A human baby. 
A human baby stands the least chance around venomous snakes, lions, wolves, and all these things. So what shall this Messiah do? So we saw back in verse 4, he will righteously judge the world. And now in verses 6 through 8, we see he will bring an unimaginable peace to the world. Okay, verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So he starts off by saying they. Who's they? Well, it's literally everything. We might be tempted to think, oh, he's just talking about this weird list of animals that he just listed. He's talking about them too, but he's talking about everything. All the animals that have been listed, but all of the people of the earth. Isaiah is talking about all the inhabitants of the world. None of them shall hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. What's this? What's God's holy mountain? It's Mount Zion, which Isaiah is using to describe the dwelling place of God, which will be in the new heavens and the new earth that will come after the Messiah has sat in judgment over the world. So when all the things are restored, the entire world becomes the dwelling place of God. His holy mountain will be the whole earth. And so there will be no hurt, there will be no destruction in the whole world. Isaiah is painting a beautiful picture of what, he, what we get more clearly stated in Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And this is what Isaiah is talking about. He's talking about this idea that there will be no pain, there will be no suffering, there will be no destruction in all his holy mountain, in all of the world. And then the second half of the verse is telling us why. Why will there be no hurt or no destruction in all of your holy mountain and all the world? For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. How? How much shall the earth be full of the knowledge of the Lord, Isaiah? And he's like, oh, I'm glad you asked. It's as much as the waters cover the sea. Well, how much do the waters cover the sea? That seems weird. Isn't the sea made up of water? How do you cover water with water? It seems like a circular argument, which is exactly what it's meant to be. Waters can't cover the sea because the sea is composed of water. The earth shall be composed of the knowledge of the Lord in the same way that the sea is composed of water. There is no part of the sea that isn't water. There will be no part of the earth that won't have the knowledge of the Lord. And so not only will there be peace between man and man, between man and animal, between animals and animals, more importantly, even though Isaiah doesn't speak of it explicitly here, there's going to be peace between man and God. And that's what the Savior does as he executes his authority as king and judge over the world because his judgment will be perfect. He will come and, and judge all. Those who put their hope in this Messiah will not receive the judgment for their sins because the Messiah has received it for them. And those who have not put their hope in this Messiah, in this Christ, will be destroyed and be separated from God forever. So back to our list. What will the Messiah do? So we saw he will righteously judge the world. He will bring an unimaginable peace to the world. And he will fill the world with the knowledge of God. Which brings us finally to verse 10. 
In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So verse 10 starts off with, in that day. What day? In what day? That day when the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as water covers the sea. When the Messiah has come, when he has sat in judgment, and when all things are made new, and things have been undone and fixed, and there is no more animosity, and there is no more conflict, and there is no more pain, and there is no more suffering. On that day, and then he says, the root of Jesse. Wait, 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 wait. I thought we were talking about a shoot. A little boink with a leaf coming out of the stump. We've been talking about a shoot all day. Now all of a sudden, we're talking about the root. Somebody is being called the root of Jesse. Who are we talking about now? We're still talking about the same person. We're still talking about the Messiah. We're still talking about Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one. And this is where we're going to, I think, get a little more help, bringing some more clarity to that weird thing that we talked about earlier with Jesus being the son of David and yet being David's Lord. How can he be descended from someone and be a shoot that comes from that family line that gets cut down, but also simultaneously be a root of that family tree that precedes David and even precedes Jesse, that is providing life and nutrients to the stump in the first place? I think the answer is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So this Messiah, this anointed one, this Savior, the Word, he was with God in the beginning, and he is God. All things were made through him, and nothing was made without him. So he's clearly the root of Jesse's stump, just as he's the root of every family tree because they were all made through him and for him. So he is God, and so therefore he sits outside of time, but he's interjected into the timeline of man through the incarnation when he's born as a baby, which is, of course, what we celebrate each year at Christmas. So through the incarnation, he is indeed the shoot that comes out of that stump of Jesse, And because he is God through whom all things were made, he's also the root of that same stump. So in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Stand as a signal. So signal can be confusing to us. It is the appropriate word to translate it into, but it doesn't necessarily help us get the meaning well. In other translations, this word gets translated as banner, which I think is more helpful for us to understand. So if you think about armies on a battlefield coming toward one another, there's always the standard bearer, the guy who doesn't have a sword. He's just carrying a flag, hoping nobody stabs him. And he's staying near the king, and he holds up the banner. So if you're over there fighting and things aren't going well and you want to retreat and find safety, where do you run? Back to the banner. That's what's being talked about. He will stand as a signal, a banner for all the peoples. All the people can come to his banner for safety and for refuge. Of him shall the nations inquire. They will flock to his banner, which is what is spoken of in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father." That's what's being talked about. Of him, of this Messiah, shall the nations inquire. They will run to his banner. They will bend the knee to him. 
all will sit at his feet. And his resting place shall be glorious. Now, we tend to think of the phrase resting place as some place where we bury a loved one. Where is your grandfather's resting place? Oh, in Harlingen or whatever. But that's not what he means. This is more of a reference to the dwelling place of God, the dwelling place of our king. Once the work of redeeming and reconciling the whole world to himself is done, where shall that king dwell? Where shall he rest? And again, Revelation 21, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. God will dwell upon the earth with man as it was in the garden, only better. And so now we get the last addition to our list of what will the Messiah do? He will righteously judge the world. He will bring an unimaginable peace to the world. He will fill the world with the knowledge of God. And lastly, he will unify the world under his kingdom. So let's review our little lists according to our text. These first 10 verses of of, uh, Isaiah 11. Where will the Messiah come from? He will come from the line of David, but he'll be greater than David. He will come after the Davidic line of kings has been cut down by God. What will the Messiah be like? He will be anointed by the Holy Spirit as a prophet, a priest, and a king. He will be more discerning than we can imagine. He will be righteous and faithful in all that he does. And lastly, what will the Messiah do? He will righteously judge the world. He will bring an unimaginable peace to the world. He will fill the world with the knowledge of God and he will unify the world under his kingdom. So, every good sermon ought to have some sort of action item for the people, some sort of application so that God's people know what they need to do in light of God's word. What are you supposed to do with this text? Believe. Believe and rejoice in this promise of this Messiah. This is the promise that we are meant to celebrate on Christmas which is easy to lose sight of as we busy ourselves with trees and lights and presents and parties. And none of those things are bad. They're good. It's fun to get together with friends and family, to eat good food, to have good conversations, to wear ridiculous sweaters. It's good. But we need to celebrate the beauty of this gospel that's woven into this text. As we read about his righteous judgment of the world and the punishment of the wicked, that judgment comes with the beautiful reality that those of us who've put our hope in this Messiah are spared that judgment that we deserve for our wickedness. We should believe and rejoice that God has sent this Messiah that Isaiah tells us of. We should believe and rejoice that we are in between this Messiah's first and second coming. Jesus has already come, and he's done the work of making the redemption of sinners possible through his life and death and resurrection. But he has yet to come in judgment and to restore the world. We should believe and rejoice that God has brought the solution to all of our problems, You'll notice that in this passage, nothing has been said about you. Nothing's been said about me. It says nothing about what God's people are meant to do in light of this incredible cosmic huge reality. Because we're meant to sit in awe and wonder at what God has done. Think of the story of Mary and Martha. 
right? Jesus comes into their home. Martha gets busy doing what she's supposed to do, taking care of people, cooking, cleaning, doing stuff. Mary just sits at his feet. And Martha's like, what's up, girl? You need to help me. I'm working. That's what we do. We're supposed to be doing stuff. And Jesus says, she's chosen the better thing. We are meant to be like Mary and sit at the feet of our God and be in awe and wonder at what he has done. Our hope should be in this Messiah, this anointed one, this Savior who's come and made it possible for us to be saved in the first place. Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And so to make it even more simple, for those of us who like sound bites rather than a bunch of notes, what are you meant to do with this sermon today, church? Two things. Hope in Christ, for he has come. Hope in Christ, for he is coming. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we have a good God who has revealed himself to us through his word. That you have sent your spirit to illuminate the truth of that word to us, that we might know what your word teaches us about who you are, what you've done, what you're doing. That you have promised to fix the problem that we have in this world, the problem of sin. Sin is this pervasive thing that's being dealt with by the Messiah, by Christ. And so we proclaim that we believe and we rejoice in what you have done and are doing. And we have hope that your son has come, that he has done this work, and that he's coming again. And so we pray that as we celebrate Christmas together, that we will remember the promises that were given to us so long ago and that have been fulfilled in part and will be fulfilled in total upon Christ's return, that we would remember we're in between these things, the already and the not yet. And that's a good thing. And so we pray that you'll be near to us as we get together with family and friends, as we celebrate, as we eat good food, as we have laughter and joyful stories remembered, that we will not forget this most important of stories about how you broke into the world, that you put on flesh, Jesus. You came to rescue us from our sin because you love us, because you're good. Nothing in us declares our earning or deserving of that gracious gift, and yet you give it so freely and so graciously. So we pray that you will help us, enliven our hearts, give us great hope in the coming of Christ and great hope in the knowledge that he has come and that those two things are both good. We love you. We thank you for your son, and we pray in his name. Amen.